Hello, and welcome to Our Food is Our Future, presented by Eat Well Saskatchewan and the College of Pharmacy and Nutrition at the University of Saskatchewan. I'm your host and food explorer, Mo Matthew. My guest this week is culinary consultant chef Jenny Lassard. Jenny was raised in northern Saskatchewan, where she picked berries, cooked and baked. She was interested in food from an early age and opened a hamburger stand in La Ronge before grade 9. In 2005, she opened the critically acclaimed New Ground Cafe in Birch Hill, Saskatchewan. This is where her love of traditional foods and her care and attention for local and seasonal flavors came together. She then went on to be the chef-in-residence at the Saskatoon Farmers Market from 2013 to 2016, while also running a catering company. In 2019, she became the first female and Métis executive chef at Weniskewin Heritage Park. Jenny has moved on from chefing to become a culinary consultant all over our beautiful province. One of the places she still consults is Weniskewin, where she still watches over the Hanwai Dinner Series. Everybody, this is Jenny. So thank you very much, Jenny, for um, coming and agreeing to be on the podcast today. Our food is our future seems to be more people that cook or people that are excited about food or those people that are um, all about tradition and traditional foods. So I'm hoping you're in one of those categories. Can you tell us about yourself, where you're from, your background, maybe your current role? I might be in a few of those categories. <laughs> um, I love food. I mean, we all love food. We uh, we eat it every day, whether we love it or not. So, I mean, everyone's future is food, which is great. I think this is an amazing podcast to have to get some different perspectives on things. So, my name's Jenny Lassard. I currently live and work in the Capel Valley in Lumsden, Treaty 4 Territory and homeland of the Métis. I'm a citizen of the Métis Nation of Saskatchewan, born in Prince Albert, which is where my mother was born and her mother and her mother in that area in the um, Cree-Métis settlement near Prince Albert, sort of near St. Louis. But Prince Albert was where I was born. And then when I was a newborn, we moved up to Besnard Lake. And then when my sister was school age and I was about four and a half, we moved to about 10 kilometers north of La Ronge, Saskatchewan. So I didn't grow up in my traditional, like my community that I was from, but I grew up in... Um, Northern Saskatchewan is actually the geographic center of the province, but and really was able to be, you know, surrounded by plants and berries and a lot of had my father didn't hunt, but we had friends and and community members that did. And so growing up eating moose and beaver and all the beautiful fish. So I think my foodie map was set pretty early in life. And now I'm a culinary consultant. So I had a restaurant in a little town called Birch Hills, Saskatchewan, kind of um, about 16, 15 kilometers from Muscaday First Nation on your way to Melfort. And it was just a town of a thousand people. And I had a small local foods restaurant and I tried to bring my Métis cuisine and heritage into the dishes whenever I could. I had a Red River cinnamon bun and I had my aunt's bannock recipe that I've traveled with and shared with many different establishments over the years. So that restaurant was called New Ground Cafe, and that was from twin 2005 to 2012. Then I moved to Saskatoon and had Chef Jenny Cuisine and did catering all over in Saskatoon, but all over the province. 
And then got connected with Wanuskewin Heritage Park, which was really exciting. I'd always wanted to do something there. And um, was the chef involved in developing and still run the Hanwe Dinner Series. And then was able to be their executive chef for almost two years. But I came on just before COVID. So that was a very interesting time to be an executive chef. And now I have a culinary consulting business called Inspired by Nature Culinary Consulting. And I'm also right now the interim executive director for ICAM, which is the Indigenous Culinary of Associated Nations, First Nations, Métis and Inuit cooks and chefs. That's really, really neat. Like that, especially the last piece, your, your interim. So what does that mean? You're going to, you're going to run it for a while and then take over permanently or how, how does that work? Well, hopefully not. (laughs) I do my, I love the work that I'm able to do on a national scale. And I have been traveling a lot ever since travel opened up with ICANN and with, you know, other projects, but my heart is in Saskatchewan. And in our communities. So I, I love to be able to work with, you know, First Nations owned tourism businesses and work. I helped pilot a project last year, a culinary tour, tour called Field to Shield. So it's up in Mississippi and it starts in Saskatoon. And our first stop after we have a smudge and a welcome ceremony by Honey Constant Inglis, who's from Sturgeon Lake Cree Nation, we go to Batoche and I'm able to tell the story of you know, where I come from on my mother's side and the story of the Métis people. And then we just work our, we eat our way up north. So we stop at Elk Ridge. We have a beautiful picnic there. And then we spend five days where the guests learn culturally from the people in the area, from the Grandmother's Bay community. And then culinarily (laughs) from me in the kitchen with cooking classes and long table dinners and special events and things like that. So yeah, and that's just one of the projects that I do here in Saskatchewan. So I, my role with ICANN was to help them transition. They started under the Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada, and we still receive amazing support from them, but we're now an independent nonprofit organization. So just need to do a few more things and put someone really great in this role, and I'll still be connected as a member. But I think all of it, and I think you've done this too, Mo, is that when you get to a certain age, I'm almost 50, you really want to be doing the handoff and the knowledge transfer and the you know legacy work. That's what's more rewarding to me now than, you know, seeing my name in a magazine or whatever. Like we've done that and that's great. And you really need that when you're growing your career. But right now I want to push. I shouldn't say push. I want to <laughs> encourage other people to come <laughs> forward and take those roles and some of those economic opportunities. Funny, Am I like your yeah. most talkative guest? I'm so sorry. Cut me off anytime. I, I like the push thing because sometimes it does feel like a push is needed. Encouragement, of course, but push sometimes works. Yeah. <laughs> when you're <laughs> talking about, push. yeah, a big push. When you uh, were talking about when you were younger and eating the foods from the land, we get to talk about that quite a lot on this on this show. Would you be able to expand on that, like? What do traditional foods mean to you? And so you were right there. You might have a a better thought than most. Well, I think like I'm, I was born in 1974. So back then, way back then, it was more the norm to be eating traditional foods and things that grew close to where you lived. I think 
you know, having a garden, my mother always had a garden, my grandmother always had a garden, and in northern Saskatchewan, the growing period is shorter, but things grow really big. And I think people think, you know, in the north, that gardening maybe doesn't exist. There's actually gardens out on the rocks around Orange too, that people, you know, have grown strawberries and, you know, realize that there's a little bit of a, a, a different climate on those, in those rocky areas in the Canadian Shield. So, I think it wasn't until I moved away from LaRange to Jasper, Alberta to finish my last year of high school that I was like, whoa, there's all this cuisine all over, <laughs> all over the place. And, you know, in the LaRange co-op in the 80s and 90s, you know, mangoes didn't arrive until maybe 1990 or something like that. So, you know, it was apples, bananas, grapes, but they were expensive. So, you know, berries were the thing. They were free. You just had to go pick them. And, you know, you can fish in the lake. It's just it, everything was there. And then you move away from that and you're like, oh, it's not there. And I understand that, you know, for someone living in town, they wouldn't have had the same experience as someone growing up, you know, on a trap line or visiting a trap line in the, in the summer or growing up where I did, which is right in the bush. But, yeah, it was more of learning the opposite way. Like, oh, OK, this is a world that doesn't really value these traditional foods how can we kind of highlight that or bring that back into focus but where I grew up too there was a it was a government town so there were a lot of people from all over the world so we got to have Indian food and Filipino food and Russian food and Ukrainian food so oh, that's great. I think yeah and I mean it, I would I never said no to an invite to a family celebration so I got to kind of taste the world while living in the north <laughs> That's kind of important. Um, when when I was working for um, the SHA uh, as a director of nutrition, I was I was told we were bringing in traditional foods, and I had to say traditional to who? Um, exactly. Because we have such a big melting pot, and I really uh, think traditional foods to me is foods from the land of Saskatchewan, and you know it being um, either made here or grown here or raised here. All those kind of things still resonate, but also too our um, our citizens are from everywhere in the world. So how do we kind of build things that they're going to understand, but use products that are from here and that are still comforting to them, especially in that um, atmosphere of, of hospitals. It was just yeah. kind of a challenge. It was very challenging. And also, you know, the supply chain is, it's different. You you can't really order 500 pounds of cranberries because there may not be, it might not be a year where there are a lot of cranberries. And if it is, perhaps those need to stay in the community. And so it's, it's, it was a really interesting challenge. I worked on that project as well, the Nourish, Nourish project with um, bringing indigenous and local ingredients into patient menus for the Jim Patterson Children's Hospital. So that was really a, quite a challenge. And it was during COVID. So that made it even you know, a little bit more challenging, <laughs> but I got to eat all those delicious little peds meals on the little special plates that they sent me for testing. So <laughs> it was really cool, but you just hope that, you know, that can continue because it's a, it's a, you know, it's not the norm anymore to have that in hospitals. But I was going to say back to traditional foods. And if we're talking about Métis foods, like my sister and I, and my mom were joking the other day that like is, is click or spam the, the Métis <laughs> 
canned meat of choice. Oh boy. <laughs> and in our family it was it was quick. But you know, there's these things that are now they're comfort foods or they're just kind of you know, China lily soy sauces in every northern cupboard. But you don't think of that as a traditional indigenous condiment. But I know it is now. but it, 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 it kind of is, yeah. And <laughs> it's that thing when you when you brought up that I'm like spam cuz we went to Hawaii and my my friend is a native Hawaiian like many generational like as far back as he can remember his family can remember he's Hawaiian. And when I was like, well, you got to bring me to the best foods in Hawaii and he brought me out for a thing I think I, I think it was called poco loco which is like Spam and eggs and potatoes <laughs> and I was like I I I think you're you're messing with me and he was like no we we love spam we have since it it was uh it came to the island and this is our this is our dish now so there is something to be said for traditional foods are what you remember <laughs> that China lily scare that we had a couple years ago you it you was figured out yeah. <laughs> And cheese whiz, like my my grandma's bionic was always served with butter and cheese whiz. Ah. So to me, that's what that's what you serve with bionic. But then you go somewhere else, and like, no, it was always peanut butter and strawberry jam. So there's a lot of commonalities. I know I work with Batash National Historic Site with their culinary team, and the menu isn't decided. Menu items aren't decided just by me as a consultant or by any one person on the team, it's kind of a, you know, if five Métis agree, maybe it is not just our family, maybe everybody, this is a Métis dish. So, you know, even down to the, you know, what vinaigrette should we use? And saying like, okay, we had this white vinaigrette, sometimes it had celery seeds in it, but it was always served when the garden produce was coming out. And we were like, yes, we all had that. And we, I don't think it's, you know, particular to any other culture. And then um, once we made a shredded bison stew just because of the style of, you know, the cut of meat we had. It worked better to do that. And one of the elders said, you know, if you're going to call this bison stew, the meat needs to be in, you know, com- cubes. like cubes. It has to be cubes because that's not actually what bison. And you can make whatever you want in your own home. But if you're <laughs> representing Métis culture, he wanted to make sure that we were, you know, showing what it, what it exactly was. So we took that, not even under advisement, we made the immediate change because when an elder tells you that, you're like, okay, got it. Yeah. And yeah, so I think it's it's kind of a bit of a, you know, as a Métis person in the food community, sometimes people say, teach me the Métis ways of cuisine. It's like, I only know what I know. I'm not going to say that I know every recipe or you know, what every person ate, because like you said, it's so regional. If you're, if you grew up in the North, yeah, fishes and moose are probably part of your diet. If you grew up, you know, three generations of urban people, that's going to be different too. No kidding. No kidding. That, when you're, when you're saying that about the salary and the whatever, um, those, those things are real. And, um, it, it was weird. I live in, um, a house as a young person, we had tortier. But we had tortier here, and then my dad also liked a different type of tortier because from his family. So we had at our Christmas table, we had two tortiers there, and one was 
really different than the other. And it's how they're like, that's what he thought uh, was Tortier and he didn't like the other one. Now, I don't know how people get to this point, but you know, all the same spices. It still has, <laughs> you know, mostly the same meats. It's a pie. You know, it's, it, it is what it is, but he was uh, emphatic. And so too was my grandma on his side about, no, this is tortier. That what you're making is a meat pie. And I'm, I'm like, well, oh, come on. <laughs> but That's after, so cool. and then what do you put on top of it? Do you put maple syrup? Do you put choke cherry syrup? Are you allowed to put anything on it? Like, do you serve it with a relish? These are all that? things that we talked about for hours doing the Batash yeah. project. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, but that's kind of that's kind of where we are. Like I I I appreciate that people think, you know, if you're going to have traditional foods then it has to be all traditional, you know, so it has to be the the water in the stream has to be like it was hundreds of years ago and and the grass has to be the same and it has to be un, unencumbered by any colonialism and and I'm like okay, so now that none of that can happen, well, what is traditional foods? And so it's kind of a a thing like um we can't have certain meats uh, allowed in our restaurants, our institutions, or whatever, because they have to be farmed. Well, you can't have farmed wild, or no. it doesn't taste like itself, you know? So, I don't know. We, it's, a, it's a conundrum, for sure. And the whole point of country foods or wild foods is that I'm not going to say they're free, because there's always an investment in time and energy and learning that goes into harvesting, but it's not the original output of purchasing. So if you're not, it's it's kind of what we talk about at ICOWN a lot. If you're, if you're buying duck from a farm in Quebec to represent Northern Saskatchewan cuisine, it is that really like, that's not, that's the letter of the dish, but not the spirit of the dish. So, but that's what we're faced with right now. And that's what kind of hobbles the projects like the hospital nourish project is that they just simply can't unless they get special permission from, from health regions, which is a whole other podcast. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> the future of food whole, sovereignty. That could be a series of podcasts. I'm sure. Yeah, I remember when I had my restaurant, I had a chalkboard menu, like just a daily changing menu. And one time the star Phoenix came to do a story back when the paper was still there and the the picture the photo was my chalkboard and it said rabbit pot pie and the day after that paper was published the health inspector was at my restaurant going through my freezers looking for rabbit that I think maybe she thought I had snared or something (laughs) and I said no I got it from Pineview Farms because at that time we were (laughs) buying rabbits that someone had raised and you know we could I could get that from them so I showed them the receipt and the email ordering it and but I thought, isn't that crazy? Like, what if the you know place across the street is selling expired lunch meat sandwiches? How would they ever know? Like, and which is more dangerous? They weren't. I think they weren't. Everyone was. Everyone got great marks in their food safety in Birch Hills. But <laughs> it just seems like we're an extra target for that. And I get why, from a conservation standpoint and a public health standpoint. But these are foods that nourished people for you know thousands of years. But now they're dangerous and scary. Call on on that and, and you know wellness and health, um, especially with traditional foods. We hear that food is medicine, and so yeah. what does that mean to you? What does food is medicine mean to you? 
Well, since I'm no longer a full-time restaurant owner, caterer, chef, I've been able to get back to my kind of first love, which is harvesting plants and berries. And for me, the medicine begins when I kind of go into that space of getting myself right to go out harvesting. So I'm not going to go out in an angry mood or, oh, I should be writing emails or whatever. You know, it starts when I choose what I'm going to wear, get my tobacco out to lay down as a thank you, and I head out the door. And then that whole process is medicine of the harvesting and the picking and thinking about, okay, these I'm harvesting for that school project because I want to show them what choke cherries are like. And then, you know, finishing that and thinking, oh, I can harvest some rose petals now. This I'm going to use for this, for the Hanwe dinner or whatever it is. So for me, that's the medicine as well as eating it. And I'm not going to be a hypocrite and say that if you looked in my fridge right now, it would be full of, you know, sage and berries. <laughs> like it's February in Saskatchewan and I, you know, I, I share a lot of what I harvest and things have dwindled, but I do have, you know, walleye, I have bison, I have, you know, some of my rose hips frozen. I have a whole, you know, personal apothecary of plants and medicines, but. Wow. I mean, it's tiny. I could show it to you. It's literally one shelf. <laughs> <laughs> Still, you have one, though. Yeah, and I've just really started, especially this last the last couple of months, to take a look at my own health and not just shove random bits of food in my face. That you know, that's what I've been doing. So my first food food business I started when I was fourteen. It was a little little food truck at the Larange Airport that we rented from the Kiganak Friendship Center. And you know, when you're working. You know this as a you know chef and all the different things you've done. Our own bodies and nutrition are the last thing on our list. Everybody else gets fed first. We literally, sometimes I remember thinking, like, did I go to the bathroom today? <laughs> I'm not even kidding. And, you know, just like, you know, eating was just putting enough calories into your body to get through to the next day. And then when you had times off, you know, you'd make up for it in probably some unhealthy ways. So I'm really trying to feed myself first now, and that's made a big difference. Again, that's nice. very privileged to be able to be like, oh, I'm going to change the way I eat. I have enough food security to actually plan what I'm going to eat and eat this thing and not the other. Like, I think when we talk about the future of food, it's like acknowledging that so many people in our communities don't have any choice over what they're eating. Yeah, it's a bad state of affairs when that happens. And then trying to eat properly. And especially now, with the prices of food being what they are, you have to make choices for actually putting something in your mouth versus the quality and the the nutritiousness of things. So it it it's got to be tough for everybody out there right now. Yeah, my kids are adults, so I don't have to worry about feeding a teenager, a growing teenager on these food prices. Like, it would be incredible and you don't earn more money based on how much money you need that's a very <laughs> simple statement but like i think we need to get back to somehow being able to be more communal and how we feed ourselves and each other and checking in i know there's a lot of um, mutual aid appeals that i see going out on social media that are really interesting and i try to help out whenever i can with that like you know so and so has four kids and they have less they have more months at the end of <laughs> less money than months, <laughs> however that goes. And then you can actually help out. But could it be something that's not so much of an emergency thing? Can we plan to have, 
you know, berry picking expeditions and then maybe having a program where we can make sure that people have freezers and can, you know, stock themselves up with some of these things. I think blueberries in a, like a pint of blueberries, how much are they now? Like eight ninety nine more? Definitely more in the north. Oh yeah. It's it's crazy. pretty pretty difficult. But yeah, I think that's we're gonna be thinking about food a lot more in the future. And one thing I want to say too is that climate change is really affecting things. Um the choke cherries, which is my favorite thing to harvest, you may have noticed, they were five weeks ahead of their season last year and I missed I only got, I think, eight pounds harvested, and I normally get about 50 and then can share it out because I was away when the choke cherries were in season. And by the time I came back in August, they were already done. So things are really changing fast with that. Yep. Yep. And, and we're going to have a tough and- season this year, too. Um, we had that really crazy cold snap uh, last week, two weeks ago or whatever. Um, your, your fruit trees, uh, they can't come down to thaw. And then freeze in the middle of the winter again no. and then thaw again. Like, how confusing for the trees. Yeah, the climate's a really big factor in this, for sure. What what role do, do you believe food plays in health and wellness? Or, or even, how about this one? How about healing and wellness? Oh, I think it, it plays a bigger role than we know and probably than we We'll know for quite some time, but food is, for me, food is, it's a gathering point. So I always think of when we would go to my grandma's house in Prince Albert, it was just really small, like maybe 800 square feet, and there'd be 30 of us, and we'd be outside in the backyard with the fire going, and we'd be sitting around the living room, and everybody kind of ate in different places. Sometimes we even had to set up the little guest room as an eating area for people, but that was celebration and that was healing. And I think I probably dream about the house and my grandma and having food gatherings at once a week <laughs> because it was so important and stuff like that. And I think that's, I think a lot of us are eating and I'm not going to say you kids shouldn't be on your phones, but I think we don't eat in groups as often as we used to. And I think there's a really big difference when we do, when we sit down and we, mindfully kind of have conversations and laugh and tease each other over food. So I think that's, I think if we can start doing that again, that will really help. But I don't know, like when I'm upset or, you know, something's going on in my life, I completely lose my appetite. And that's the very time when you need to use food as medicine. But I remember, again, back to my grandma, she had a neighbor that was, clinically depressed but back in that time I think you'd call it something else like under the weather not herself and she couldn't (laughs) eat and she had lost a significant amount of weight unintentionally and one day my grandma was just you know thinking about her and probably praying for her and she thought butterscotch pie and I'm not saying that depression could be healed by butterscotch pie but she made up a made a butterscotch pie took it over to her neighbor and the pie plate came back empty a couple of days later. And she said that was the first thing that I was really able to eat that tasted like anything. But I don't think it was like, yes, she made legendary pies. But I think food is love. Love is medicine. And then food is also like chemically medicine when you looked at, look at the breakdown of it. Yeah. Does that make sense? <laughs> uh, I, I think sometimes I load up the question and say health and wellness 
and we kind of skip over um, mental health, you know, mm-hmm. and I think uh, that being around a table and sharing and story and camaraderie and love really goes a long way in keeping our health up there. Yeah. So I was able to be when I had my restaurant, I really got to know a lot of my customers and, you know, you could tell when they were going through something and sometimes I'd suggest food items to them that I thought maybe they could stomach or they could handle depending on what was going on. And it seemed to really work and make a difference in their lives. So I think just having someone who like, and that's not a paid role, is it Mo? Like there's no one who's like, you need to be the food auntie and (laughs) you know, know when people are sick and find the right food to bring them. But I think that would have been a role way, way back. That, For sure. that, you know, someone was like, okay, this is what they need. Probably wasn't pie, but, <laughs> but yeah, mental health and nutrition are, are very important. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And when you were talking about working with the people at the SHA with the Jim Pattison, and that was including, that was, that was getting more traditional foods or more indigenous foods, uh, available for that specific Thing. Can you expand on that a little bit? It was specifically going to be for the children's patient menus at the hospital. So we, I tried to keep things super recognizable, like I made a little egg McMuffin, but it was a specially made bison patty from a local supplier with bannock, a bannock bun. And I think we had a wild berry kind of compote that went with it, a little yogurt dish. But it was... You know, you you have to think about what will people want to eat when they're feeling a certain way, because, you know, it can be the most traditional, delicious, pure food in the world. But if you're not feeling like you can stomach it or if it's something you're not used to eating, because not all Indigenous people, as you mentioned before, eat traditional foods. So, like, we need to provide a level of comfort and recognition and also visual appeal. And there was a, there were a lot of roadblocks too in what style of food to be prepared because the equipment is so massive and then when I was like saute some onions it's like well we'd have to do it in a kettle and then freeze it and everything comes back up everything's rethermed so it was a really challenging project and I'd love to revisit it and just see how it's going and if they've been able to use any or all of the ingredients and what the feedback has been um, in terms of giving back, I just want to mention someone in the Saskatoon community who does that so well. It's Rachel Smith of Bannock Express. Hmm. And she started her, her business. She'd been selling on Facebook, you know, for quite a while when she first started doing it and then opened a business during the pandemic, which was oh. super brave. And they've had a community donation wall since they opened so people can leave a meal and then other people come in and when they need a meal, they can access it there and then she also i think matches a lot of those donations and feeds people in need so like there are there are so many people that are doing it and that are feeding their communities with no questions asked and you know they don't get a lot of press for it but they're out there doing it so bannock express and the the reason that came to mind is (laughs) i believe she was one of the patient the testers of the patient menu because she has nine children living in her home so that we thought that's a good cross-section from teenagers to toddlers right so that was that was part of it too is it was a little bit difficult with that too because we were right in the thick of covid in in february 2021 that made things impossible for sure exactly i want to redo (laughs) 
Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> oh, oh, it would be nice to see people. I, I, I worked in a, in an office and I never saw the person that was the office one down from me wow. for about nine months. It was, oh my goodness. it was a long, long time. So yeah, I didn't, that wasn't good for my brain that, that time of my life. So. And the, the reentry is a little bit tough too. I think there's a lot of anxiety and, Especially when I think about youth that went through three years of their life like that. And like when I was a kid, if I had to stay in on a Friday night, it was like literally the end of the world. (laughs) Uh, No, I think that's the same for lots of them still. (laughs) Yeah, but they did have that digital connection. So I think that's that was probably a saving grace in a lot of cases. And also the future of food. So I'm finding that when I work with youth who have any amount of a foodie bend to them, there's so much more advanced than we would have been at that age because like if I wanted a recipe, I had to put in a long distance call to my grandma or my aunt or like someone who had the recipe or I had my like paper cookbooks or you could go to the library and check out a book. Like there wasn't this wonderful access to YouTube videos and food cultures from all over the world. So I think the future of food is that new chefs and cooks are going to be well ahead of the curve by the time they actually get in a commercial kitchen cooking. But they may also have to learn a bit backwards, too, and learn that there's things that are just as important as the execution of the dish, like the kitchen culture and the etiquette and, you know, the long hours, etc. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but, yeah, I think so, that's super cool, the evolution of food, is that now we have access, like, in a second to all this information. Yeah, that's and actually the youth is kind of important to our last question and our last question um is the same for all the guests all the guests get the same last question do you have any advice for any youth listening to this podcast regarding just their futures or pertaining to health and wellness well can i just focus that on culinary sure <laughs> i think that Right now, you don't have to decide, I want to do this when I grow up, when I graduate, when I, whatever. I think you need to find what you're passionate about it, about what really made you glow when you were like, between the ages of like four and eight. What were you always doing? Were you doing puzzles? Were you in the kitchen? Were you, you know, always sitting around asking people questions? (laughs) And then from that, kind of get those clues as to the different projects and the different jobs that you can kind of put together to make your work path because I've I started as I've always been doing I've always been cooking since I was you know eight years old commercially since I was 14 I've also always been writing and telling stories and always loved to connect with connect people and connect with people and now I'm able able to do all those things and I think before we were a little bit more set and we had there was more job security you could work at a company for 35 years uh, that's not really there anymore and that's scary in some ways but it's also really freeing because you can create your own brand and your own you know weave all your passions together but at the same time i'm pretty glad that there wasn't social media when i was a teenager because <laughs> let's just leave it there but i think it's really important to Keep try keep your integrity as much as possible because that's what people are going to be looking at when they hire. Like when we do a search on so and so, are we going to find 
you know, that they're a really angry, toxic person, and they will find that everything shows up. So just really try to stay true to your values and what you've been taught as much as you can. Everybody makes mistakes. I sure do. And then that's what's going to guide you forward is keeping that core passion of who you are and how you relate to people and what your your skills will develop as part of your passion, not the other way around, I think. And if yeah. anybody has in, has questions about how to get into culinary, uh, how to get into Indigenous culinary, anybody can reach out to me anytime. My email is chefjenny at sasktel.net, I'm old school, or jlassard at indigenousculinary.ca. And I can connect you with someone who can help you out or I can answer some questions. I think having guidance and kind of like what I used to call my foodie godmother, Amy Jo Amen, people that just, <laughs> and you know her too, that can say, hey, I think this opportunity might be cool for you. Like, that's what we need to do for our youth is continually point them in directions that feed their passions and their skills. Awesome. awesome. There's a lot of opportunity out there. <clears throat> yes, and thank you very much for sharing some of your experiences and highlighting some of the opportunities. That's that's great. I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate your stories. And I really appreciate you, Jenny. You're pushing our uh, culinary uh, pieces for the Métis people forward. And I just think that's a great thing for for us here in Saskatchewan. So thank you very much. Well, I appreciate you as well. And, you know, we've kind of followed each other's career paths and it's quite a small community. And I think what I really appreciate about appreciate about you is that you do do that piece of lifting people up and finding opportunities and sharing the opportunities. So I really thank you for that and also for your delicious cooking when I do get to eat it, <laughs> which hasn't been for a while. Hint, hint. Anytime. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for your time. Have a great day and thank you, you very too. much for doing this. Thanks so much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. I would like to take this opportunity to thank Eat Well Saskatchewan for their continuing support of our podcast, Our Food is Our Future. Eat Well Saskatchewan is a free provincial service offered by the College of Pharmacy and Nutrition at the University of Saskatchewan and funded in part by Indigenous Services Canada. Eat Well Saskatchewan is here to help bridge the gap for nutrition services to rural, remote and isolated communities that lack easy access to dietitians. And a huge thank you goes out to the Community Initiatives Fund for our funding and their vision. Without their support, we couldn't tell the stories of our people, our communities, our food, and our future. A heartfelt thank you, M. Marseille.